Hello, my name is Gustav Hoyer, and I am a composer. Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. Thank you for joining today's Anachronism Podcast. I'm extremely pleased to have a very special guest, Mr. Scott Harrison. He has an extensive background in the world of orchestral music and has held significant positions both in Los Angeles and Detroit and elsewhere. We're going to hear a little bit more about his background in the conversation today, and we're going to be learning about his passion, why he has invested his career in developing a love of classical music in cities around the country. So with that, I'd love to welcome you. Scott, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Gustav. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, pleasure's mine, and I'm thrilled to be able to share your insights with our audience. And I like to take this opportunity to explore your love of the music, not just systemically, not just from an industrial standpoint, but a personal one. I think music is such an intimate and human thing, and I like to ask my guests a question about how it was you first discovered classical music, and maybe you can tell us a bit about how you entered into this in the first place. I was a product of great public schools, and it's, as a side note, why I remain such a proponent of strong public schools and strong music programs in our schools, because growing up uh, in suburban Long Island in uh, the 80s, uh, where we had, uh, thankfully, a lot of resources and great opportunities to engage in arts and music and sports and all sorts of disciplines in school, when when we were in elementary school, the band teacher came around, it must have been third grade, and did the demonstration of the instruments and said, who wants to play what? And um, I chose the trombone, which only lasted, no, I'm sorry, I chose the trumpet, which only lasted about a week or two before the teacher came to me and said, I don't think this is quite right for you, but why don't you try either the clarinet or the trombone? And I switched to the clarinet, and eventually I became a bassoonist, and the rest is from there. So for me, it was really cultivated at school. Uh, music for me was actually a very social experience in the beginning. It was making friends. It was making music together. It was creating music really before I was listening to music. And so for me, that's my origin story. It's in the schools. It's music as a social process. It's music as a creative process. It's music as a community process. And I think that's why a lot of those themes have sort of continued to be present and prevalent in my career ever since, because that's how I first got engaged with the music. It's not uncommon for some of my guests to have had musical training at an early age, and uh, it's. I'd love to peel that back a little more. I like to kind of get into the who the person is. So you yeah. had this opportunity to interact with brass instruments. wasn't quite a fit. Did no. you feel? Did you know that at the time when the teacher said that? He's like, "Yeah, you're right. This really isn't working." Or were you just bewildered, just following the channel that was in front of you? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. I certainly knew I was struggling even in that short amount of time with sort of getting a some sort of decent sound out of the out of the instrument compared to some of the other kids. And I certainly could see the look on my parents' face when uh, I was trying to practice at home and not getting very far. So I think on the one hand, I realized it wasn't quite the fit, but there was something in me. There was some drive that was innate because neither of my parents were musicians and neither of them pushed me. Their policy, which I think is a great policy, was we want you to do things that you're going to be excited about and pursue uh, passionately and thoughtfully. So if you want to go into music and you're going to take it seriously, we'll be your biggest supporters. We'll pay for the lessons. We'll pay for the instrument. 
as long as you're motivated yourself to keep going at the, at the moment where you don't want to do it anymore, that's okay, but we're not going to sort of do the upkeep. We're not going to keep the instruments and the lessons going. And the truth is they never really had to harp on me and it wasn't their intention to harp on me. I just sort of drawn to it. So the trumpet didn't quite work, but as soon as I got that clarinet in my fingers and in my mouth, it felt like this is right. And I would made really quick progress and I just was having a blast uh, doing it. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's interesting when players versus string players and piano players. I mean, we can start a little bit older. Um, and I think from the beginning, our experience is often a more social one. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's, it, that band experience uh, is a little different than the sort of string experience. So Suzuki is certainly an ensemble experience, but it's a little different than the string experience and certainly a little different than the piano experience. And, and I actually think it's a great place to start in a wind instrument because you just become part of something bigger than you and you have to navigate and negotiate all these quirks and idiosyncronicities. Am I saying the word right? Idiosynchronicities. And, uh, uh, it's, it just, for me, I just, I just fell in love with it and, and it was clarinet, it was saxophone, it was bassoon. Um, I was, uh, playing them all and, uh, just really having a blast. So at some point, maybe we'll come back to the topic because I, I do find it intriguing that different musicians have an instrument and it's almost as if they're they're kind of made for a certain kind of instrument and some some aren't and sometimes it's the physical structure of the mouth and the embouchure sometimes it's hand size or body position other yeah. things and and it sounds like you had some good guidance early on but then the instruments themselves have a personality yeah. so did you feel like when you found the clarinet you found your voice in a sense, or not so much? Well, really where I found my voice was the bassoon, which happened two years later. I stuck with the clarinet, but the bassoon really became my instrument since fifth grade. And yeah, 100%. I mean, the personality of the bassoon, I think, was the personality of me. I mean, I think the bassoon is, um, it's a friendly instrument. It's a jovial instrument. It's a happy instrument. Um, it's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, it's a nexus point. You know, it, it's, it's, it connects to the woodwinds, it connects to the brass, and I like sort of having my foot in both worlds and sort of feeling like in the center of things. And I'm a social guy, I, um, um, I like crowds, I like groups, I like big conversations, and so playing the bassoon and sort of feeling like I was the connector in that way, um, yeah, it, I, think it really, I think it really did speak to me. I mean, of course it helped that I had, you know, I had the hand size and the, and the to be able to play the bassoon and there were some of those you know physiological things but personality wise the instrument just really really spoke to me i liked sort of the position it had uh in the center of the ensemble so something our listeners may not be familiar with but the reeds on instruments especially the more yes. advanced you get is it's a very personal thing for players they craft and shave mm -hmm. the cane and and i learned that i'm a pianist and i learned that yeah. when i met some oboe and bassoon players yeah. as i studied um talk a little bit about that process because there's so much individual about the musician that's going into that yeah and it doesn't happen until you're older when you first start of course your teacher's providing you reeds or you're buying reeds at the store, but uh, double reeds particularly, the bassoon and the oboe. So clarinet and saxophone have a single reed. It's one piece of cane that is attached to a mouthpiece, and by blowing into the mouthpiece, the air makes the reed vibrate against the mouthpiece, and that produces the sound. Bassoon and oboe do not have a mouthpiece. They just have a double reed. It is two pieces of cane that are tied together, and I'm simplifying, and, 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 and carved, but in essence... 
the two pieces of cane tied together are the mouthpiece and the opening. And when you blow into it, the two reeds vibrate against each other, and that produces the sound. So, yes, I mean, because um, uh, bassoon and oboe, because you're so dependent, you don't have the stability or the consistency of that same mouthpiece. You actually have the whole unit is a piece of wood that is temperamental and fragile and is constantly you're needing a new one and making a new one. There's a lot of exactly personalization, individualization that goes into uh, making your reads and really sort of creating the sound and the style and the and the energy that you're sort of going for when you play the instrument. There's a craftsmanship in it. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, it's, the best oboists and bassoonists have to also in a way be the best read makers because you need that comfort, that facility, that familiarity to really kind of, and that drive to really be good at that sort of craft work. And, and you know, skipping ahead many years, I, I ultimately didn't become a professional bassoonist for a number of reasons, but I think one is that my reed making was not one of my strengths. And, you know, it's interesting. Now there is a lot more comfort, I think, with the idea that particularly bassoonists, it's harder for oboists because the reed is so small, it's even more temperamental, but because the bassoon reeds are a little bigger, um, there's a comfort now with like buying bassoon reeds as a professional and sort of like specializing. Like there are people who are good at making reeds and they can learn about you and they can personalize them for you. And there are people who are good at playing. And, and that's a more recent phenomenon. But, you know, I just didn't, among other things, I was never a great reed maker. I didn't have that. I'm, I'm not a good craftsman in a lot of ways. I'm not a handy guy. So I never really had that sort of facility. I don't think I had quite the patience that it required to be a really good read maker. So for me, that was always a little bit of a hindrance throughout my um, advanced career or my advanced training as I went to undergrad and grad school and, and a little bit of sort of professional performance. So, um, yeah, but it's, 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 a, it's an amazing thing when you see bassoonists and oboes who really are into it and really so much of their personality and their heart and so much of their time goes into the read because, you know, by the time you're a professional um, and you're past sort of your auditions, your primary time is not the practice time on your instrument, it's the reed crafting because there's never a shortcut for that if you're going to keep making them um, where there, you know, over time you get facility and comfort and your, your practice is more about uh, sometimes keeping in shape and maintaining, but the reed making is a, something that never quits. It's fascinating. Uh, and, and one of the things I love about the orchestral tradition is the intimacy of player and instrument and that it, it predates our industrial world for exactly mm -hmm. the things you're saying. Strings, each, each instrument has its own, the, the cup yeah. for the trumpet. There's so much yeah. of the interface between the instrument and the human that goes in, and, and musicians spend an enormous amount of time optimizing that interface for yeah. who they are and what the instrument can do. It's, it's, and it, it can get lost when you're in a big sweeping orchestral score, yep. that that intimacy exists for every seat in every yeah. person's hands. There's this really intimate connection with this wonderful machine. These instruments are machines. And they, all they really do is magnify what's coming out of people. And uh, I, I love how you describe with the, the read that intimacy. Yeah. Well, I think there's a connection between the intimacy of the musician's relationship to their instrument and the sweep of the whole orchestra, because the only way you get the sweep, the only way you can lose the individuals in the in the thicket, in the forest, is if they all have the facility and comfort to really be one with their instrument. So all that work is actually in service of the larger goal. And I, I think non-musicians are surprised the amount of sort of technicality and and um, and experimentation and, and the logistical side of being a musician. It's not unlike being, you know, if you're a great 
if you're a great baseball player, a, a successful Major League Baseball player, the time they spend on their bat, something that to those of us who aren't in that field think, well, that's silly. It's a bat. It's a piece of wood. Okay, pick it up and hit it. But they're like, you know, they're trying out micro gradations of, you know, an ounce here, an ounce there to find the bat that will just be perfect for them. You know, or someone is um, whatever the field might be. But in music, it's the same way. You know, a, a trumpet player who spends years looking for that perfect mouthpiece that just feels exactly right on their lips and gives them the great facility they want. And again, with a bassoonist or an oboist, you're kind of doing that every week because your reed is only lasting so long. So you're kind of recreating the wheel. You're learning and you're evolving and you're getting better. But you actually have this this um, this constant feedback loop, which is not available in most other instruments. Absolutely. So I want to go back now on your journey. And this moment intrigues me. Different people have that time when they realize music is this irresistible call. And a lot of folks join a band. A lot of folks have played and experienced that social experience of band music. And I think you're right. There is a special community in the band. But there was a point at which you realized, wow, this is going to be defining of my life. There, there's, a, there's a moment or maybe a handful of moments we say, oh, yeah, that's who I am. I'm, I'm actually all about this, this kind of music and sharing it. And when was that? Can you, or, or is there a place you can look, an event, maybe a person, any event that you can attach to? I can't think of an event. I know certainly it was a pretty clear calling in high school. Um, you know, I knew sort of entering high school that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I remember actually in middle school where I very much enjoyed music. I had this thought that I was going to actually be a film director. And I don't know quite where that came from, but that was in my mind. So at least having a life uh, in, the, in, in a creative field was always sort of a part of me. Um, but high school, I definitely remember sort of being comfortable in that skin and being like, this is what I'm going to do. But I was a little unique because, you know, and again, it's not because some people it's because their, their parents push them. It wasn't in my case, uh, though maybe subliminally, who knows. But um, I knew I wanted to do more than music. I knew I wanted to get a double major and study liberal arts and music. And I knew that part of my fulfillment as a musician and an artist was going to be grounded in a broader experience. So as much as I knew I was going to pursue music and study that seriously, I also knew I wasn't going to solely focus in that space. And of course that became a harbinger for later in my life when I became the thing I didn't even know existed, which is an arts administrator, because I don't think a lot of high school kids are going around thinking I'm going to be an arts administrator. Um, but yeah, I think that I knew, you know, I knew early I was going to be in a creative field. I knew, um, by high school, definitely I was going to be a musician, but I also knew that I wanted to explore and connect with other parts of who, who I was and that my sort of learning was going to be a much more holistic one. So from that seeds of that creative energy and, and you entered into music, uh, I'd love for you to just give a brief overview of the work you've done and, and I'll have all the show notes with your full bio, but I'd love for you to give us a, a distillation and some of the high points so that they can appreciate some of what you've done. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, so I went to Northwestern and I studied bassoon and political science. I went to grad school in Dallas at SMU and I studied, uh, got my master's in bassoon and also did work on a music history master's. Um, I started gigging and playing professionally in Dallas. I played around town. I was a member of the Irving Symphony, which is a very small per service orchestra, but was a very cool experience to get to do that. Um, and then I transitioned, well, I should say, and then I had some really amazing experiences that sort of tapped into the, more into the community and social 
justice aspect of, of the way I approach the arts now, and that was my formative experiences being in the Youth Orchestra of the Americas, which has since been renamed the Orchestra of the Americas, and is a grouping of young musicians from all across the hemisphere um, who come together as sort of a, on the one hand, sort of a prestigious sort of summer festival, but on the other hand, with a real focus on service through their music activity, uh, playing up and down the hemisphere in different concerts all over, you know, the Americas. Um, but after SMU, after my experiences sort of kind of being a little bit sort of thinking, am I going to go performance route? Am I going to go some other route? Uh, I ended up going the arts administration route, and I could talk about this for a while too, but I remember it was a speech in particular that a gentleman named Bill Lively, uh, who um, was a legendary fundraiser in, in uh, the city of Dallas. He was actually a band director who then went into fundraising and raised money for the Super Bowl in enormous sums in Dallas and then raised money for the AT&T Performing Arts Center which is the opera and performing arts campus that opened in Dallas about, I'm going to say, seven or eight years ago and has been just transformational in that arts district. And it was a speech that Bill Lively gave that the light bulb went off. And I said, ah, actually, this is going to be my life in the arts. This is going to be my life in music. It's going to not be as a performer. It's going to be as an administrator. And so I very quickly sort of shifted gears. I spent a summer at Tanglewood working with the Boston Symphony. And then I sort of started what I call my real career. And I was at the New Jersey Symphony working in education community programs. For a couple of years, we traveled all over the state, and again, some really powerful experiences. I remember bringing our concert master and one of our other fan, who was Eric Weirich at the time, and one of our other fantastic violinists, Kelly Hall Tompkins, who does amazing performance and mission work through music, uh, based in New York City. And Eric and Kelly, we went to a breakfast for agencies that dealt with individuals recovering from addiction, and the performance was in like a warehouse on the outskirts of Newark and we showed up and the, and it was the middle of winter and the heat wasn't working that day. And this was the first time we had taken music from the New Jersey symphony to this gathering to connect with this group, to show them that we were there and that our music could hopefully be of service and that we could learn from them and they could learn from us. And we showed up, this was the first time. And again, the, the heat wasn't working and, I remember being nervous because here I am, the young manager, thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to walk. They're not going to play. They have their instruments. And um, and I just, you know, I went to Eric and Kelly and I explained the situation. They said, no, this is important. We're here. They need us. And maybe we'll cut, you know, maybe we'll have to cut the performance a little short if it gets a little too cold. But we'll put our gloves on. We'll put our coats on and we'll figure it out. And they played just the two of them in that cavernous warehouse with no acoustics and people spread out eating uh, eating their breakfast buffet. And they just delivered their music and the room was silent. And that started a relationship performing for individuals and organizations, helping individuals dealing with recovery in Newark. Um, and for me, it just opened a window and a light to, in a very sort of um, uh, uh, initial way, preliminary way, what it's like to engage outside of your traditional environments. And what's it, what's it, what's it like to really humble yourself through the music for others? And so I spent two years in New Jersey Symphony. I said to myself, well, if I'm really going to make it work in this field, I need to get on the revenue side. You know, I need to I need to prove that I can help bring the dollars in. So I went first the marketing route, spent four years at uh, Indianapolis Symphony, launched uh, a huge online music listening library, sold a lot of tickets for our classical and pops concerts. Uh, had great relationships with the musicians there, had a lot of fun. And then after four, a little shy, shy of four years, I went to the Detroit Symphony. Um, and that's, I could talk about the Detroit Symphony for hours. Um, 
what I learned there, what I accomplished there, the transformations we went through at the symphony during the time I was there. But among many other projects, one that I'm proudest of is the launch of Live from Orchestra Hall, which I think many people are familiar with because it still remains to this day, eight years later, the only uh, webcast series by American Orchestra. So just like the Berlin Philharmonic has their digital concert hall, the Detroit Symphony has uh, dso.org slash live, it's digital concert hall, and there are live concerts for free, and there is a replay content for a very small donation. And that was just the most amazing experience, testing accessibility on this grand scale and and testing the the boundaries of digital access. Um, Well, I did that, and then, of course, I I spent the last four years running Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra as as their executive director. And so many things I'm proud of there, whether it's our fellowship program, I'm creating pathways for musicians from underrepresented communities, primarily black and Latinx, to um, have career pathways in music and succeed to their greatest potential, whether it's our new session concerts that are melding music and movement and eliminating or testing the boundaries between artists and audience and a whole sort of new approach and a new way to what a concert experience can, can be, whether it was just expanding new partnerships around Southern California, which is one of the most dynamic and fertile and exciting places for music and all art forms in the country right now. So, you know, that's sort of the highlights of my career in a nutshell. And I'd be remiss to sort of end if I didn't mention the other thing that really is a part of who I am, which is my work with Bloom Haiti. Uh, Bloom stands for Building Leaders Using Music Education. We are an organization that um, I'm a founding board member. We're eight years old. And we are an organization that is building and promoting and strengthening the music education ecosystem in Haiti. And we're doing it in partnership with 40 wonderful music schools. We're doing it by strengthening Haitian leadership, by listening to our partners on on the ground, by being really responsive to them, by being uh, really of service to them, and really not necessarily to create great musicians. Though though we do have some, some of the students we work with who are fantastic and have gone on to the States and Europe and other places to study, but really to build community and to create leadership and to spark creativity and to help in a country that has unfortunately had a number of relationships with the outside world that have been ex- exploitative, um, to have a relationship with a U.S.-based organization that is positive and is um, respectful and is really about growing self-sufficiency and capacity and capital in the country. Um, and that's been a really humbling, there that word that word comes up again, that's been a very humbling experience as well. But I love my work with Bloom Haiti and we are just um, growing so much day by day, and so I'm exceptionally proud to be a board member of that organization as well. Really impressive legacy, and there's some things I want to probe into a little bit more in there. Uh, and so one of the questions I have, and I had sent this to you in advance, of all the styles of music, because I think some of what you've described, your work in Haiti and, and in New Jersey, it's the power of music for human connection. And you've uh-huh. even said that's some of your genesis of your journey. But of all the styles of music, why is classical music one that's retained your attention? There are so many ways that a musical career could manifest. Why this genre? I struggle with this genre. I think a lot of us do right now. Um, and I, I, I struggle with the terminology. Um, I think a lot of us have a love-hate relationship with the word classical. Um, it defines the discipline and the rigor and the creativity of the music, but it also seems stifling at times, and it can feel outmoded or old-fashioned. I mean, you know, um, uh, 
no one tells Nick Cave or Mark Bradshaw that they're a classical artist, you know, visual artist. They're just an artist, you know, and no one tells uh, Meryl Streep that she's a classical actress. She's an actress and sometimes she's in classical roles and sometimes she's in modern roles. And so I struggle with the term and I struggle with the confines, but I, I love um, it's the social aspect of it. I think people do not realize sometimes how much social capital and how much teamwork and how much creativity is required to be engaged in classical music, to be engaged in ensemble-based music, uh, to be engaged in an orchestra or a band or a jazz ensemble or because jazz music is another type of classical music that deserves um, our full attention and respect. Um, and that's part of what I think. It's that it's that discipline of working together and creating something larger than yourself. I think classical music is often about something larger than yourself. Um, but I also um, have become very wary of this idea that I hear sometimes that our music is universal or our music speaks to a higher truth. I think many musics are universal and many musics speak to higher truths. Classical music can be universal. And I've seen it in Haiti. I've seen it in other parts of the hemisphere. I've seen it across the world. Classical music can be universal. But... Reggae can be universal. I mean, what's more universal than Bob Marley? I mean, when you think about how music connects and speaks with people. And so I both love and cherish and want to strengthen this art form. And I also want to give this art form a lot more humility because I actually think we'll be more successful and we'll reach more people and we'll be um, people will be more open to what we do. If instead of trying to put ourselves on a pedestal, we actually try and equalize ourselves and say we are one of many music art forms. I mean, if you think about rap, the sort of lyrical dexterity and the verbal acuity that that takes, that's not in classical music. We can't offer that. So if you say, well, if I want to work on that side of who I am and I want to express some hard truths that maybe need to be expressed in a very literal way, that rap is a form that can provide that. And if I want to express something else, that classical is a form that can provide that and bluegrass is a form that can provide whatever it might be. And if you're in Haiti, compa, their dance music, their merengue or roots, their music based in the in the indigenous sort of traditions of their country can express something too. Then I get very excited about classical music existing in an ecosystem. And I particularly get excited about um, the abstractness of classical music because I think abstract art can reveal and share something in a very powerful way that sometimes it's better to be subtle. Um, and sometimes you can express a truth in a subtle way that you can't in a literal way. So um, that's what I love about classical music. And, and of course, when I talk about the abstractness, I talk about the expression, the creativity, it starts to um, bring up modern classical music, contemporary music, you know, composed music that's still being created today. And that's what particularly excites me. I mean, I find myself more and more drawn to um, the classical music of our era. And it's funny because most people who start in classical music are, are sort of brought up on a diet of a canon and a repertoire that you perform. And what happens is the people who perform it the most still love and connect with that repertoire, but get most turned on and most curious as they grow older by what's being created today. And it's a little bit different as someone who's a practitioner sometimes in the audiences. The audiences are often in the reverse pattern. Um, but in any event, I'm most turned on, I think I'm most excited by the classical music of today because there are just so many creative and unique and daring and ambitious voices out there representing every culture and personality and, and gender expression and racial uh, mode of diversity and just sort of diversity of human experience that is not necessarily always represented in our canon. And so that particularly excites me as well. 
One of the things I would note about some of your administrative work is in a sense you are an impresario in that more classic sense that part of the creativity that's required of a social music, especially a music that requires this kind of scale to get this many musicians and to marshal this kind of musical talent, uh, I have experienced myself how much creativity it takes to bring people who wouldn't normally find that kind of music, give them a gateway and invite them in. And, and I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about closing that gap, because in some sense, if there's no audience, the, the organizations will suffer. And I have a question that follows up on that. But the creative process of, of luring and beguiling a modern listener to this form of art. Yeah. Maybe you want to uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest again. I, I struggle a lot with those questions too. I think a lot about Beethoven. I think a lot about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Beethoven's Fifth. It's a Beethoven year. It's the 250th anniversary. And of course, some very witty and snarky and probably right commenters have said, why do we need a Beethoven anniversary? Every year is a Beethoven anniversary. I mean, look at the major orchestras in America. They're not, they're not wanting for Beethoven performances. At the same time, I know that every time we perform Beethoven 5 or Beethoven 9, there are people in that hall who are hearing that piece for the first time, and that's a really powerful experience for them. And there are people in the, in the hall hearing that piece for the hundredth time, and it's revealing new layers for them. And there are people who are saying, you know, I've heard this, and I love it, and I appreciate it, but I'd like to hear something different. So we have to kind of modulate and deal with all those sort of ideas and so I don't think the question is necessarily anything goes away. I think it's about balance. And I think it's about how do we strike um, seasons and how do we strike um, approaches that and how do we combine things? And this is an art form more than anything else. So certainly marketing data can help. Uh, how do we strike this sort of balance between what should be happening on our stages? You know, uh, Gustav, you talked about community. And I was thinking about how there's actually a theater director that we worked with. We did a, a a production at LACO of Kurt Vile's Lost in the Stars, his final stage work, which is an incredibly powerful tale of race. It's, it's based on Cry the Beloved Country, uh, Alan Patton's novel about the early years of apartheid in South Africa, but it frankly was an indictment of America, sort of using the safety of talking about apartheid in South Africa. And the director we worked with is Anne Bogart. And I apologize, I can't remember if this was her saying this or her quoting someone, but she talked about how in theater there are like, two communities, if I'm getting this right, there is a community that, ex or the world that exists on stage that you're recreating of the fictional drama, but there is simultaneously the world that is the, and that, that sort of in a way ends at the, at the stage lip, at the proscenium, but there is also the world that is this theater and this venue that the audience and the actors are in together that's connecting and communicating with each other. And we have the same thing in classical music. And I think sometimes for all the social dynamic and all the creativity and all the community that is happening among the stage, I think sometimes we struggle to translate that past the edge of the stage, past the fourth wall. And we ask the audience to sit in such reverence that in a way we're creating a disconnect. So I think that anything that connects the audience and builds forms of community and, and, and shares the humanity of the classical music experience beyond the edge of the stage is part of the solution. So whether that is, um, if you're playing new music, actually bringing the composer out there and getting to know that person, understanding how and why they put it together. If it's the way that you help the audience see and understand the music making that's happening on stage, and this is where the digital aspect comes in, whether it's something like the Life of Orchestra Hall that's happening, um, 
uh, out on your computer screen or whether it is, um, you know, when people have experimented with screens in concert halls, but letting people actually see the human dynamics that are happening in the stage, uh, whether it's the way the, 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 or the, the conductor speaks with the audience, whether it's the way the musicians maybe come out before the concert and introduce themselves and, and bring down the barrier and welcome you into the experience, whether it's the way you let the audience get to know each other and have conversation among themselves and, and feel the bond of the person next to them, or whether it's something like we did in the session concerts in, at LACO, which is like just throw the whole thing out and just say, let's not have a stage. Let's go into spaces where there's no stage and let's create musical environments that are responsive and reflective of the pieces being played in that exact moment and where the audience is within and the musicians are within themselves and each other. And so I think that's a lot of the answer. Um, you know, I always, and at the same time, I get it. Like, if you're, it's, it's, it's not like you can perform Beethoven nine and say, well, we're going to put, you know, we're going to put a thousand people sort of in and among Beethoven nine. And so it's like, how does, when you will, when you deal with our grandest, most, um, most epic works, how do you maintain some of that? Though actually, I'm reminded of a concert that Anthony Parther, the music director of the Southeast Symphony programmed, where he ended the concert with the final movement of Mahler's Second Symphony, but took a journey through the concert that began with Nina Simone's Strange Fruit, you know, about the struggle um, of African Americans and music that spoke to um, the, the violent and visceral experiences that were being inflicted on them. By American society, and then he wove that into a contemporary piece by a uh, by a British African composer, um, and then he eventually brought it home into Mahler too, and the resurrection, and sort of feeling cleansed in a way, or sort of feeling revitalized. And I'm not at all doing the concert justice, but um, I think those sort of ideas and that audience was just wrapped with attention. That audience was connected to each other, and between each piece, there were interstitial videos that sort of connected and told a story of what journey you were going on that, that night. So I think we forget sometimes that music is an, music is an art too. It's theater. And I'm not suggesting that every music concert has a program. I'm not suggesting that every music uh, concert has video, but I'm thinking if you think of every musical concert as a thorough experience and there should be purposefulness in what happens from the first downbeat to the last applause, whether the purposefulness is also the purposefulness of a more austere experience, and how you create that environment. But I just don't think it should be taken for granted. I don't think it should be like, well, you know, I didn't get a chance to iron my tails tonight and I'm just sort of gonna, you know, show, go out there and wing it and, and hope that the thing feels like a whole. You know, it's like, no, like we've thought about and planned and prepped for what this experience is, whether it's a sacred experience, whether it's a profane experience, whether it's a formal experience, whether it's informal experience. Maybe that's the thing I wanna come back to at the end, like purposefulness. I want more purposefulness in what our concerts look like because I think we put a lot of time into the rehearsal. I think we put a lot of time into what music we want to share, but we don't think about the whole element of what the concert actually is as something you bought a ticket to and are going to be at for the time that you're there and want to just be lost in that moment for that whole time. A lot, a lot in there and uh, some things. That I'm really... sorry. I know these are long answers, but. A lot to say. Going. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, one of the things I'd like to respond to, you talk about unconventional programming, and in some of the concerts I've done, uh, you've the very things you've described is how do you permeate that barrier of artificiality that, uh, honestly, there's an ostentation or pretentiousness in classical mm -hmm. music, for, especially as part of American society. We're a casual mm -hmm. society, so it's very foreign to us. And things like getting rid of the stage and having the orchestra on the same level as the 
the audience, having the audience sit among the players where possible, like you described. Um, one thing I've shared with my audiences along the way is the observation that when you're in that room with that mixture of people, the way the nature of the physics of the sound, the sound is emanating from those instruments. Mm -hmm. And the very experience that they're hearing in their ears can never be reproduced because they're uniquely fingerprinted in how that sound moves in the room. And suddenly the audience goes from being a remote, distant third-party observer to being actually part of shaping the sound itself. And I've, I've heard a lot of feedback from folks that they love that. They love feeling like they matter, that listening is as much a part of the creative journey as the music making on the stage. And to your point, I love how you have characterized the social, it's a conversation that's occurring yeah. amongst humans, some with instruments and some who are there yeah. to be a different part of the conversation. Yeah. You know, I want to give an example. Um, and it was actually the first concert of this season at Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra with the new music director, Jaime Martin. One of the things I'm proudest of at my tenure at Lake was the appointment of Jaime as music director because he is just one of the most warm and thoughtful and engaging musicians, I think, um, on the podium today. And Laco is really, I think, privileged and, and, and in a special place to have him as their new music director. And when you talk about purposefulness and the conversations of, of Jaime's first concert, there were a couple sort of things that came up. One is that we decided to turn the dress rehearsal into a community open rehearsal. So even before the concert started that evening, the dress rehearsal that morning had a purposefulness to it. It started to imbue the weekend with a different sort of attitude. Then the concert included a premiere by Andrew Norman, and so he was brought into the concert, and now he spoke to the audience, and now he was presented. And then for Andrew's work and for the Beethoven 7, Jaime made the decision to have the orchestra stand, um, which is something you don't see often in, in I'd say modern, because Beethoven's modern, and when we're talking about orchestral performance, you see it in broke performance sometimes. You don't see it often in modern performance. But to have that purposefulness of this is Jaime's first concert, everyone's excited, energy is heightened, this is an orchestra of chamber musicians who play together with everyone in such a special way, and by having them stand, by heightening their senses, you heighten the audience senses. These were all some very simple things. None of them changed the underlying tone of the, the concert, none of them detracted from the concert. All they did was heighten the concert, and they were simple, but there was purposefulness. And so... I mean, my time with LACO is done, uh, and th these sort of opening concerts of this, of this last weekend were sort of, um, I felt in a way, sort of like the, the culmination of, of, of sort of like my era and the handoff to the, to the next uh, era of leadership that will happen. But I was just so excited by all the thoughtfulness that went into what were his first concerts going to look like and how were they going to feel special, different, and connected. And connected to who Jaime is, connected to who all the LACO musicians are on stage, and connected to who the LACO audience is and who the greater community is. So I think that's what I, what I, what I think about when I, and what I mean when I talk about purposefulness. One of the things, and I believe it predated your tenure with LACO, I, when I lived in L.A., I would drive through downtown, and there were these wonderful billboards. I don't know if that's still a campaign for LACO, and the individual players were featured. There would be the violinist and oboist, full mm -hmm. and and in a town that is so personality yeah. driven. Yeah. I thought that was that was a beautiful statement of the individual personality of the players yeah. and yeah. and almost an insistence that this matters and and these are stars too. These are people who are at the top yeah. of their game. Some of the finest players in the world. I really loved that and. It, 
did you intersect with that campaign? Did that continue? That started before me, um, but we continued a lot of that spirit. Um, and particularly as we were able to engage more in digital tools and blogs, podcasts, video interviews, showing off the personalities of our musicians, of our guest musicians, and really sort of making them individuals in their own right. Um, uh, yes, I mean, that's part of the LACO ethos, and I think it's part of what makes an organization stand out. And again, I think it's part of purposefulness. Is like, yes, this is a... Um, this is a group experience. Ultimately, it's about the sound that happens when everyone comes together and no one, no one person is larger than or above the sound. But like we said earlier, it is the individuality of each of those 40 musicians that enables the sort of group mass experience to be so powerful and see so, be so cohesive. And so the irony is it's because everyone is such a strong musician and individual and an artist in their own right it gives them the power and the ability to blend and almost become invisible in the sea of what the whole thing is. And so constantly bouncing that dynamic of here we are as the whole ensemble, here we are as the individual voices and personalities, and putting those forward in different ways, that was a lot of the conversation and a lot of the drive between how do we brand, market, and present the institution uh, on a regular basis. So in this next chapter, as you move on from LACO, I'd love... In, a, in the time we have left to hear a little more about where you're headed next, the impresario, uh-huh. your creative energy and your passion for these social experiences. Please tell us more about where you're taking all that energy and enthusiasm now. Well, next I'm headed to dinner, <laughs> but Fair no, um, I don't know yet. I'm doing some interesting projects um, right now uh, that uh, really speak to me that are sort of broadening my work in the arts I'm still very much connected to music and the performing arts, but I also have been spending so much time thinking about what unites art forms and how the work I do is not specific to one genre and the goals that I have in mind, which is to inspire people, to connect people, and, to, and, and really to foster sort of democratic collisions among people from different walks of lives. So I think that's what the arts does, is not just about music, not just about uh, any one mode of interaction. So I'm exploring some opportunities that might push me into other art forms that I think music will still be connected. I think um, music will still be a very prominent role, but I think I might do something a little bit broader. And so I'm talking to some people and exploring some opportunities. And I apologize, I don't have any uh, specifics to offer yet, but I'm still very much living a life in the arts uh, and a life driven by the arts and a life driven by what happens when people come together and just um, discover themselves and one another through music and i'm excited to see what happens next for me because i think that um, everything i've talked about will be a clear part of that of that chapter uh that i next step into so as you move on whether classical music proper and and i share your your difficulty with the terminology because it's so reductionist in some ways of what is um but but as you move on to that, the, some of the folks who listen to this podcast stumble upon it for a variety of reasons. They yeah. have no connection to classical music. Yeah. When you think about what you have spent your energies on, um, what what would you leave with some some thoughts for folks who may be encountering this for the first time? And whether it be new compositions, newly composed music in this style, and, and the way I describe my pursuit is that I write modern stories, but I write it with a classical vocabulary. Um, it's definitionally modern because it's being yeah. written now, yeah. but then there's also Beethoven. And 
and the powerful humanity of these artists whose work lives on, yeah. um, what what would you say? Maybe some thoughts for folks who are encountering this for the first time and maybe need some guidance on how to think about it. Well, Gustav, you know as a composer that it's a myth to tell anyone that composers are geniuses. You know, you guys are human <laughs> like the rest of us. Absolutely. And so the first mortal. thing I say is like, don't let that genius idea get into your mind. Like when someone says Mozart's a genius, Mozart is... Bach is a genius. I mean, these were exceptionally talented, creative people, but they were mortals and they were humans. And I think their music is more powerful if you think of them as mortals and humans. And I think it's easier to approach and connect with. They made mistakes, you know. They wrote they wrote music that ended up in the trash bin, um, you know, despite what, what Amadeus might have you believe that, that Mozart, everything just came divinely inspired from the pen. These were humans and they had struggles and they had financial struggles and they had marital struggles and they, you know, sometimes wrote for the right reasons and sometimes wrote for the wrong reasons. Um, so I think that's really healthy. And I think it actually brings the music to life in a different way. And then it reminds you that this is not a dead art form. This is a this is a living art form. And then when you connect to composers of today, you say, yes, these are humans and these are people who are expressing something. And then you can start to really kind of appreciate what's coming out of their pen what's coming off the page because what i would suggest to people i had this conversation with um a donor here in la i really respect she is uh, a leading light of the city and she loves the classics and she is very um has a very healthy appreciation for the importance of new music though it's not necessarily um what draws her but she understands why it exists. And we had a conversation once where she was saying to me something about like, well, tell me about how you listen to new music. I struggled to get into it the way you do, Scott. And I said, well, what I realized at one point is that you can't listen to new music with old ears. You can't listen to new music and expect it to be the same experience and the same mode of engagement that you would for Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Berlioz, just to stick with some of the Bs, even Berio. Um, a lot of new music, for example, is very much a, like I said earlier, a lot of it's very much a theatrical experience. It's trying to create an emotional landscape for you. Um, a lot of new music is trying to bring you to a different world. Um, a lot of new music is trying to um, juxtapose or confront the, the, the um, difficulties that artists are facing right now with what does it mean to be an artist in times like these where we're struggling with very fundamental issues about what our society looks like and how it's organized. So in a way, I think modern music is much like modern art. You need to sort of stand back and enjoy the sweep of it. And just like the way you look at a Jackson Pollock or, you know, the way you look at a, um, uh, you know, the way you look at a, um, uh, well, I'm drawing a blank right now and, a, and a, I want to think of a young modern visual artist. But the way you look at a Jackson Pollock is different than the way you look at a Rembrandt. The way you listen to Ellen Reed is different than the way you listen to Elgar. Um, and I think it's okay to also recognize it being challenged as part of the experience. Like we live in challenging times. Sometimes our art is going to challenge us. And it's actually a legitimate experience to think that I don't quite understand that or that produced a difficult emotional reaction in me. But if you come away thinking and having a conversation and being like, hmm, like how do I grapple with that now? Like what a powerful experience. What a powerful, powerful experience. 
And if at the end of the day, the worst thing that happens is you go to a concert and you had to sit through a half hour of music that you didn't understand and you didn't comprehend and didn't quite speak to you. Well, so what? What was the alternative? Another rerun of Friends on Netflix? I mean, what did you lose? You can still go home and have your ice cream. You can still go home and, you know, get lost on the Internet for two hours. You can do whatever mindless thing you wanted to do. But you're actually like, you know, you were alive for that half hour that you were challenged to listen to something that wasn't you. And I think when you start to put into that landscape, that it's not about just like, I need a tune I can hum or I need something that I like, like, you know, then it becomes really cool. And actually, you'll like a lot of the music and some of it does stick with you and some of it does make happy emotions and joyful emotions. And some of it, you know, if you go to see Schindler's List, you're not going to be happy and to hum a tune, you're going to be moved by a piece of art. And I just find it strange sometimes that people have a barrier to being moved by music um, and we've created this realm where um, it's less acceptable in music as compared to other art forms to have difficult or challenging or emotional reactions versus merely happy and pleasant ones. Um, and it's all a mix. You know, those pleasant reactions are in there, too. And so I think there's so much breadth and depth in classical music. I think there's so much to engage in with the orchestra. I think you can have the most wonderful journey. Um, I think you can revel in a late Mozart symphony because it's just full of life in joie de vivre in a way that um, uh, uh, is, is just impercept is just is just impossible to, to 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 quantify or to put words to and I think you can be challenged by a work by Rameau from the Baroque era that goes off in all sorts of difficult keys and areas and and really challenges what music should be in a way that didn't happen again for 400 years and so there's just so much to dive into in this music and and I just I wouldn't paint it with a single brush stroke, but would just embrace the um, the uh, um, the the breadth of uh, of what it is. It's certainly a broad palette of offerings, and I think you've said it well. Well, with that, I do want to thank you so much for spending time. I've been speaking with Scott Harrison, who recently completed a tenure as the executive director for the L.A. Chamber Orchestra, and had substantial success there. I do want to wish you the best of success on the next chapter and we'll be quite interested to see what that looks like. I'll be sharing information about you and more detailed bio on the notes for this podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us and for your thought-provoking insights. Thank you, Gustav. It was my pleasure. And actually, I was thinking it's a little bit like classical music therapy. I got to get off my chest all the the thoughts and ideas and, and wild uh, permutations floating through my mind about where this art form is, is headed. So thank you for uh, giving me that privilege. It's been a pleasure. And if you decide you want to come back and, and share some more bounty, we'd love to continue the conversation. <laughs> so thank you and best of luck. Take care. Take care. Bye. If you'd like to connect digitally, you can visit my website at gustavhoyer.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining.